Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I am the host of the show. I'm a comedian who was in a coma eight years ago. We are in the time, actually. My coma was uh, October 22nd through November 17th, 2014. So we are in the anniversary lost time period in which I was in a coma. Anyway, but I'm out of it now, and I'm asking people questions. But this month, October 2022, we're doing a different thing to talk about horror movies in a series called This Is Your Slasher Life. The first week of the month, we talked to Joanna Isaacson about The Duke. We talked to my pals Annie Donnelly and Joe Scott about Serial Mom, the John Waters movie. Last week, you heard my conversation with We on We about Annihilation. And then this week, Bettina Johnson, I can guarantee you this is the only conversation you are going to hear about the 1999 movie Ravenous with a longtime abolitionist organizer, a dopey white comedian weaving in the book Braiding Sweet <laughs> Braiding Sweetgrass. Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote Braiding Sweetgrass. That is a new tongue twister. As always, there are spoilers in this conversation, so if you don't want those, go watch the movie. But I think the movie and the conversation can kind of stand on their own a little bit. Also, go to patreon.com slash Dave Marr and support the show. Five or fifteen dollars dollars gets you all the bonuses. This month, there's going to be one bonus Slasher Life episode that is going to be released on Halloween about the John Carpenter movie Prince of Darkness, a new favorite of mine, with Sarah Welch Larson. So that's what I've got. I want to thank my $15 uh, pigeon-level patrons, Shuba Singh, John Lee, Kurt Chang, Katie Llewellyn, Debo, Fred Fidoa, and Susie Carroll. And I hope you become one of them. Enjoy my conversation with Patina about the wild... The ultimately uncategorizable movie, Ravenous. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatown. When I'm in Shatown, I treat it like. Okay, so we're talking about the 1999 film Ravenous, directed by Antonia Bird, I think, right? Um, you're nodding, but just a reminder that we don't have video and this okay. is an audio medium. All right. <laughs> um, and. Okay, so I so I think it's important that we recap the plot quickly. Okay. I'm going to take a stab to see how quick I can go. Go. So we have Boyd, played by Guy Pierce, and we have a guy named Calhoun slash Colonel Ives, played by, what's his name? Robert... Carlisle. Robert Carlisle, mm-hmm. yeah. And, the, and so they're in the army, Boyd is, uh, you know, was a fake, he's a fake Mexican-American war hero um, because he survived and took over this outpost 
And at the beginning of the movie, they're giving him like a medal, but he was basically a coward and hid. And that's how he was able to get behind enemy lines. Uh, he was like buried beneath a bunch of his, not just like in a wagon underneath a bunch of his dead army comrades. And somehow we're told that that led to him taking over the enemy fort. He gets this medal. We're at the medal ceremony to start the movie, but the medal, the like quote promotion comes with them sent. They're like, we know you're a coward. They send him all the way to Sierra Nevada mountains in California, this like remote outpost. So it's him, a bunch of super recognizable character actors. I was like, that's a, that's a, that guy, that's a, that guy, that's a, that guy. Yep. And Robert Carlyle shows up at camp. Um, apparently not in the military and like has frostbite and is like telling all the guys in the army camp. There's like six of them. It's not a lot about how about the story of cannibalism. They were like basically doing the Oregon trail like him and a bunch of other people were led by this Colonel, Colonel Ives an army Colonel. uh, And they got stuck in this cave. They ran out of food. They ate each other. It was horrifying. He escaped and there's apparently the colonel and a woman left still. So all the army guys are like, well, we, it's three days away. We'll just walk there and save her or something. Then, and I'm not getting into any of the Wendigo stuff because I think we'll just, I'm not like doing that in the plot. Okay. Recap here. Then it turns out that. All spoilers though. Oh yeah, yeah. This is not. Okay. I'm not worried about spo- this is all spoilers. Okay, okay. People know if they've listened to other episodes that okay. we're fully in spoiler territory. Because I want to be able to talk about the ideas. Um, I'll say I really love the movie. I think it's worth watching. If you want to pause, haven't I'm about to? I haven't said the main thing I'm about to spoil. <laughs> Do you agree? You like? You obviously you recommended the movie. Yes. You like it. Yeah. So maybe at this point, pause. If Go watch want. the movie. If you can. If you want. I, I have... Spoilers have lessened their hold on me. Recently. True, true. But anyway, it turns out Carlisle is Colonel Ives. He's the one who ate everyone. There's no one left. He ate all of them. Then he goes on a rampage, kills all the army guys, um, and except Guy Pierce's character gets away. Um... And then basically Colonel I, like Guy Pierce's character eventually gets back to camp to like the two people who are still left there who didn't go on the mission and then three people. Okay. So then Colonel Ives comes back and. As Colonel Ives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Calhoun comes back as Colonel Ives to the camp. He's the replacement of basically the guy he ate. And uh, Guy Pierce Boyd is like, no, 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 what the fuck? And all the army guys, like, don't believe him. But then it's basically Ives literally eating his way through the remaining people in the camp and trying to convince Guy Pierce to become a cannibal as well because cannibals get more power. They, they are, they're, they, they're like Wolverines, basically. They like he like not the animal, the cartoon character, the X Men. Yeah, yeah, the X Men. <laughs> okay, like, where where they heal super quickly. They're super. You like eat someone and absorb their essence and their strength and their spirit mm-hmm. in this movie. 
And then it ends. Uh, well, there's a twist. There's there, a twist well, that even I forgot. There is a twist. Are you talking about the twist where the original Colonel comes back? Yeah. Yeah. So the original <laughs> Colonel, played by, what's his name? Jeffrey, Jeffrey something? Jeffrey Jones, Jeffrey Sweet. He's the principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You don't remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Apparently, this is... The, okay, so this is the most research I've done for any one of these episodes. <laughs> and I'm kind of regretting that I did. Because I'm, I, I, I've had so many arguments with people in my head mm-hmm. that I want to make sure you and I are just connecting. Mm-hmm. But apparently, that actor like got busted for child porn. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. And I don't have a way to address that. We'll just be talking about the movie. It's yeah. just a bummer. It sucks. It's wrong. It's terrible. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but so, but he comes back, turns out, uh, the Colonel Ives, Cannibal, Calhoun, all the same guy here, uh, like fed him some people flesh and he became a cannibal too. So it's like these two guys are like, let's be cannibals together. And in guys- this, in this remote outpost. In this remote outpost. Where, you know, people trickle through because mm-hmm. they're on the Oregon Trail or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just a perfect spot to to eat people and just, like, discriminately. I think they Discriminate, yeah. They're not going <laughs> to eat everyone. They're like, we'll pick and choose our battles, basically. We won't separate families. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so, okay, and so then it ends and, and Guy Pierce this whole time is struggling because he's like, well, this is a question I have, is how did Guy Pierce get the taste? So so it's a movie about Guy Pierce choosing whether or not he's going to be a cannibal, basically. And at the end, he kills himself and Robert Carlyle in a bear trap. And they both, he ends the threat of cannibalism because they both die. Yes. Well, except that that general ate some of the stew. But he didn't know. So what does that mean? That's a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. So did I do an okay job of summarizing the plot? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I need a little more positive affirmation. Yeah. No. Um, So why did you want to talk about this movie? Why did I want to talk about this movie? Well, first off, I just want to say, I want to talk about many movies. But I do have like this thing about um political horror movies and i know now that there's a lot more political horror movies it's such a ripe genre for metaphor yes and and yeah so i like analyzing good political horror movies Mm -hmm. and the thing that i forgot that i really liked about ravenous 2 was that it's like a comedy yeah (laughs) it's a comedy for sure it's like a 90s era 90s themed almost like the style of it felt very 90s except it's set in the 1840s i totally agree do you know what i'm talking about i do i do the thing that feels 90s about it to me is that it was before you know people complain about marvel and remakes all the time i think rightly because those movies have become super streamlined right it's Mm -hmm. like even like that one Thor Ragnarok, it's like, this is the funny Marvel movie. It's like, so you know, like, it's packaged. It's the bright, shiny, funny, action, crazy Marvel movie. Whereas this movie is like, the thing I've heard most people complain about it is that it is, it has too many tones. 
it's like tonally mismatched. It like switches back and forth between things too much, mm-hmm. which I love mm-hmm. about it and think is great. But to me, that's the very 90s thing because it's not a very like, it's not the most efficient machine for the story it's telling. It like goes on tangents. There's a bunch of questions that I think are unanswered. Ooh. Um, Well, like, okay, so one is how did Guy Pierce become a cannibal? Oh, it's at the beginning. So even when he's explaining um, his cowardice, like the story in the Mexican-American War, yeah, um, he's at the bottom of the cart. That's his, it? It's the blood falling into his mouth? Yeah. It fell, it? He literally said, it fell down my throat. He ate it. Right. And then he got like a surge of like confidence and right. bravery and took over the the command post or whatever behind them, enemy lines but th- th- does that literally mean that anytime someone like sucks a wound of someone else that they're being a cannibal well movie? legit though the way that they were showing it and the way that he was talking about it even he was like my my co's face was blown off and his blood was Falling into my throat. Okay, okay. And then the visual was just like his face covered in blood. True. Like through his mouth and true, stuff. True, true, true. It just felt like very slight to me. Yeah. So it was less about like a pinprick and then sucking someone's yeah, blood. Yeah. 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 Um, but like enough maybe that he got the essence and then the, the power and the confidence um, of his commanding officer maybe to actually do right, something instead right. of... And I Pretending think part of the dead. key, too, is when he's escaping Calhoun, who has just revealed himself to be a cannibal, and he starts trying to kill all the other guys who went to this cave. He gets away. He gets away with Reich, the super soldiery guy. So, gets away is like... Well... He doesn't get away. No, he like, no, no, no. They, he, like, he, fall down the yeah, side yeah, of a he, mountain. He jumps off a cliff. <laughs> Yes. Through a bunch of trees, like hitting, literally hitting every branch. branch it was amazing. Down. Yeah, yeah. And Reich <laughs> is is there, who's already been killed, but falls in the same direction. No, not quite killed. Not quite. Killed. I understand. You're okay. You're being very. I like it. I like it. But you're 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 nailing me on details, which is good. But eventually, Reich dies. They're in the same little trench, and he eats. Right. After almost two weeks. Yes. After. Wait, how do you know it was two weeks? I don't know two weeks. Okay, it might not be two weeks, but it was like over a week. Like almost, almost two weeks because they show it's a full moon and then it's almost a new moon. I had to like rewatch this shit because I'm like, how long is this? (laughs) Moon shit. I love it. Yeah. So, but yeah, he's pushed to the limit Mm -hmm. and eats Reich a little bit. And I feel like that's when he really starts to become... At risk of being a cannibal. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's where, be, because before it's like he just drank some blood. He, well, he, he was very disturbed before. So I don't know. Yeah, I love the beginning because the beginning is he's getting his medal and his promotion to captain. And it's just a bunch of other captains and people and officers higher than that. Yeah. And a long table uh-huh. with tons of American flags and like barely cooked steaks. And nothing else. There's no potatoes, nothing else. There's no vegetables. There's no steak sauce. Yeah. It's just round plates with round steaks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. And that, that he cuts into and then it's just bloody. 
And he's I, very horrified. Yeah. And he barfs. I just love, I love that beginning a lot. Oh, totally. No, I do too. <laughs> but like, it just shows that he's struggling with even eating meat. Like he's so disturbed by what had happened. Yeah. And, um, but you're right. It didn't seem like he was, cause probably he wasn't mortally wounded or had a broken leg, I guess. Maybe that's why he wasn't deteriorate, deteriorating as fast. You mean the, when, when he was buried under all the other soldiers or when he was, when he ate Reich? Yeah. The, the difference between when he was buried under the soldiers, uh-huh. he was like, there was nothing wrong with him. He just, yeah. he was a coward and yeah, laid down, yeah, yeah, yeah. like literally laid down while people were screaming his name. Which I was like, they were like all shitting on it, but I'm like, that's genius. I would want to do that if I were in a war. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. I don't want to get too like no, 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 wi- no, we'll with go. windy, but like even right before he jumps off the cliff and is with Reich um, and Reich gets the, I think he gets like stabbed in the chest or something. Yeah. There's something through his chest that kills but, him. But like, even at that moment, Boyd was even saying, Hey, you know what? Like, we don't have to do this. Like we can just turn around and yeah, like, go yeah. back. <laughs> Totally. So he's still like a freaking coward. Totally, totally. Um but like I get it. I get it. I totally understand. And it's just I think I wonder now that I'm thinking about it and talking it through actually, um I think what they're showing is that by drinking the blood, you get that essence of bravery or whatever from the person, maybe. Uh-huh. Cause he wasn't he didn't need the physical healing. He needed the like oomph. Of being brave. You don't think he needed physical healing? The first time. Oh, oh, Under sure, the, sure, sure. Uh, in the cart. Yes, yes, yes. At the Mexican War one. Totally. Mexican-American War one. But he did need the healing for the fucking fell down the mountain, hit every branch of the <laughs> yeah, tree. Yeah, I was very skeptical on like, I mean, I'm willing to suspend disbelief, but he like fully broke his leg with a bone sticking out of I it. I know, he's I He's in agree. that trench for two weeks and he's not getting like an infection or some shit like but i understand it's maybe they're those special pine things you know how people make teas out of <laughs> you don't even know what i'm talking about <laughs> no but it's, only... <laughs> but it's like medicinal or something maybe that's the type of pine he was in i don't even know <laughs> he's just sucking but... on his medicinal pine needles <laughs> or like chewing it and then packing in the wound okay but who knows but i think at the towards the end they were already showing that like, it's supernatural, like, what was going on. Yes. Because what's-his-name had no scars, right. and then he even shared the story where he had tuberculosis, and then he didn't have tuberculosis, uh-huh, uh-huh. and he had, basically, he felt, like, the healthiest that he's ever been, and his body was, like, amazing. Right. So, so are we calling him Calhoun, or are we calling him Colonel Ives for the purpose? I think he's Ives. I think, I think he's Ives. Yeah. So we'll call him Ives. Just for the sake of not having to, like, say all three of his names and the <laughs> actors' names. Yeah. I also relatively, we're kind of in it, but still relatively early in the conversation. I have a couple of disclaimers for myself. Okay. One of which is that I watched this with Hope, my partner, yesterday. We had some conversations. She is a very astute observer of live and media performance. And so I can't cite her opinions, but I will be stealing them throughout. And I have to let it be sorted out between God. I did get her permission to steal her opinions, but like you can basically anything smart that I say, 
might be just fully lifted from her. Okay. And then the second thing I have to say was about all the research I did. I listened to a couple of podcasts about this movie and I hate the way that this movie was discussed on a, on a couple. I mean, like it's not even worth saying which ones. Cause a, I don't, there's not many. I'm not, I'm not angling to be a movie podcast. So I'm not trying to have beef, but literally just any way I've heard this movie talked about as a hater, it bothers me when someone hates in the wrong way. Okay. And I think it's more interesting to talk about these movies rather than being like, they don't even do this right. Or like where there was no evidence of this and this and this. Like, what if we assumed this was a masterpiece and assumed every choice was intentional and then all of our questions had answers? Like, what would we find out if that were the case? Hmm. And I think that's way more, a way more interesting way to approach this movie. Like, for instance, assuming that it's just poorly executed because there are a bunch of tonal shifts throughout. Like, I'm more interested in like, oh, Antonia Bird shifted the tone multiple times throughout this movie. Let's assume that's intentional yeah. and go from there. Right. And then a subgenre of this, and I want you to weigh in on this too. And I also want you to talk way more because I'm realizing how much I'm talking right now. And this is your movie that you wanted to talk about. But the the big interpretation people have of this movie is that it is a, like, sublimated homosexual love story That's between uh, Ives and Bird. No. Bird? Is that? Boyd. Boyd. <laughs> between Ives and Boyd. Mm-hmm. And... I see it. I think it's there barely, but I think that element is way overblown. Cause if you actually take it to its extreme, like, can't, like, they're saying that Ives is trying to convince Boyd to come out and like the courage it takes to, there's that speech about manifest destiny at the end where he's like, it takes more courage to accept me than to reject me. And it's like, Oh, he just needs to embrace who he really is, but the movie like is anti-cannibalism. The movie doesn't give us a like pro-cannibalism perspective, I think. So if, if it's a movie, if it's a gay movie, it's like a right wing gay movie. It's like a homophobic movie. It's saying that like, this is wrong. And the only way to. Is to kill yourself. Is to kill yourself. (laughs) So anyway, that's, yeah. I don't know what you think about any of those things. I know you also think the gay read is overrated. No, yeah, I think that's ridiculous. I think the the stuff that might be there is more about intimacy in different ways. I don't even think it's about sex. Yeah. I think it's about uh, intimacy and the body. So mm-hmm. it's way more, it's way deeper and more complicated than sex. And it's, that's my read of it. Um, so like just trying to think of like intimacy beyond genitals touching or something. Sure, <laughs> like, sure. Literally. And then with cannibalism, right? So like you get to consume another person to take on their essence and to share that with someone else mm-hmm. who's also, you know, like that seems to me more intimate perhaps or more, de- you know what I mean? If there's yeah. going to be like some kind of desire. That's happening between between Ives and Boyd. But do you think it's even personal? Do you think 
Do you think Ives wants to consume specific people no. to get their essences? It- no, he just wants a family or like a tribe that does the same shit mm-hmm. so that he can do it in an easier way. <laughs> okay, yes. Right, because yes, totally. it seemed like he totally came upon that fort with a freaking plan. Oh, And for he sure. specifically saves the the other colonel. Right. Right? And then Boyd is a captain now. Like, uh-huh. it seems like he was like trying to arrange and was planning and he wanted to convert general slauson like he wanted to convert a general yeah like there's a lot of intention behind like what he was trying to do He's and going what to the most powerful yeah people. and well also why else do you think he went after the other colonel i heard what's the other colonel's name Is i don't it know Hart? oh yeah it's okay colonel Hart. okay so why do you think he went after Hart as well i think it, he needs more people generally but not big like not too many but enough people to actually like efficiently keep getting away with like eating people at the fort who are come passing through but why not pick the the religious guy or the soldier zealot or the stoner why not pick those people because he needs people that have like some kind of authority with the military okay because they're going to be running the fort Yes, I agree, but I also think there's something to the fact that some of the people he picked off had really strong belief systems. Or were addicts. Yes, yes, which is its own kind of, like... He's also an addict. He is an addict, yeah. yeah. But, like, if if the cannibalism is, is evil, is horror, is just insatiable hunger then by destroying the religious guy i feel like the message there is like god doesn't save you from this thing by destroying the super uh hardcore military guy yeah (laughs) it's like your patriotism your love of country won't say won't save you Mm -hmm. it's almost like he picks the people with the most weak like moral code in a way i didn't think about that actually yeah i didn't think about the order or the people i just thought that he was saving the ranked um totally i think that's a big part of it yeah um i think he is kind of indiscriminate with the killing though interesting yeah I mean, maybe, but this is my masterpiece theory is like, what if, what if it's, (laughs) no, no, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that like, it's interesting to me to be like, what if he's not indiscriminate with the killing? Yeah, that would be, I mean, and he even says that they won't be indiscriminate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He even says that, no, we'll be discriminating. We're not going to like tear apart families. Right, right. So yeah, who knows what the hell his criteria was? Well, this is, I think, where we need to bring... Braiding sweetgrass into it. Okay. And rather than do another long, me <laughs> talking summary, I want you to talk about Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, the chapters we both read before this, and why you wanted to tie that to Ravenous. Yes. So even when I first watched uh, Ravenous, well, okay, it's mentioned in the film even, they name it. Um, that so there are indigenous people too shame on you for (laughs) leaving them out when did i leave them out you didn't mention them in your recap so there's a brother and a sister the the movie is pretty (laughs) shitty on them too i was trying to 
I'm talking about how Martha walks away at the end and what. All right, all right, all right. Okay. <laughs> so there, there, there's an indigenous uh, brother and sister that quote they inherited with the fort. Also, their names are George and Martha, like George and Martha Washington. Dude, you are like really deep into these conspiracies with this thing. Is it a conspiracy or is it, am I just <laughs> reading? I don't know. Man. I don't think it's you're probably right. I don't know. I didn't think too deeply into that, but that is true. Um, so I've got George pins and Martha and string up at my house. <laughs> um, and so, so they. Specifically, George men- mentions in hearing Calhoun slash Ives' story mm-hmm. about cannibalism. Yes. Just started saying, Windigo, Windigo, Windigo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and was super suspicious of Ives, um, slash Calhoun while they were going. And there is this, there are just these, the other thing too about this movie. So it's comedic, horror, cannibalism film yeah <laughs> um is that there's a bunch of one-liners yeah that are in it that are amazing yeah. like double entendres and stuff like that and so anyway there was like a whole thing where um there were just all of these like glaringly red flags that were getting larger and larger and larger as they were getting closer to the cave yeah one of them being um calhoun slash ives was like licking a wound. <laughs> yeah, they're all like in the middle of in night. It, they're like asleep at night, and the religious guy wakes up and is like, "Ah, he was licking me," you know. And the, I, I, I promise I'll let the queer, like the the poor queer reading go after this. Okay, but they were like, it seemed like he was as horrified by the guy licking him as the fact that it was a guy licking him. No. And I'm like, no, I think he was just freaked out that someone was fucking licking his wound while they were asleep. (laughs) Yeah. Like, give me a break. Anyway. Yeah. So that's one red flag. Huge. Massive. And so uh, George started talking about Wendigo again. And um, before they even left the camp, uh, George showed Boyd a drawing and explained what the Wendigo is. So that was probably the first time that I had ever heard of the Wendigo myth. Mm. Um, and when did you first see this movie? Probably in the O's, like early O's. Okay. Because I liked Robert Carlyle. Mm-hmm. I liked um, Guy Pierce. Yeah. And I like I really like Guy Pierce from uh, Priscilla. Was it Queen of the Desert? Oh, Have you ever seen that? No. So it's like I was a drag a queen movie. Guy. That's what. Okay. I like Guy Pearson. Yeah. Um. So I think that's probably why I rented it from like the library or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was because Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle were in it. Um, and yeah, so that's how I tend to watch movies if it's by actors that I like. Yeah. Um, or directors that I like. So I didn't really know Antonia Bird. So, anyways, where's Windigo? Yes. Um, so this is probably the first time that I ever heard of the Windigo myth and was very intrigued. Um, and so when I, I mean, it's been years since people have been recommending um, Braiding Sweetgrass to me. I feel like a lot of people are reading it right now. It's an amazing book. Um, and Dave and I were in this organization, and I had a horrible time in it. <laughs> um, and a horrible, like, two years, you know, with the pandemic and everything. And so I was easing back into 
old hobbies and things that give me life. And so one of the things that I wanted to read was a nonfiction book that everyone had been recommending to me forever and ever. And so Braiding Sweetgrass was um, something that the Chicago Public Library have on this app called Libby. And so you can listen to the audiobook. And so that's how I was easing back into reading. Um, oh, but also I was doing a permaculture class, y'all. Okay. Lots of loops, but... Um, the person who reminded me that I just really needed to read Braiding Sweetgrass right then and there, that's this spring, this past spring, um, was somebody in that permaculture class. Yeah. And so permaculture, the way that it was being taught to us, and huge shout out to Black Oaks. Um, and so the folks at Black Oaks are teaching permaculture values and ethics from an Afro-Indigenous point of view. Um, so... So yeah, so and 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 a part of our readings, there were just so many people that were mentioning braiding sweetgrass and like referencing it yeah. that I just I felt called to read it. Um and so the Windigo came up again in this book. Um and there's two specific chapters that are specifically about the Windigo. Mm-hmm. Um and one is like introducing the concept and what it is. And how Robin Wall Kimmerer and probably other people, like, it's the way that she talks about authoring this book is that not, you know, she's not in isolation. Like, these yeah, are yeah. things that have been passed down to her or in conversation with other folks. And the book is, like, I think the appeal of the book and the reason it was able to maybe pierce through to, like, Westerners is that she has the legitimacy of, like, she is a... Western scientist. She is a botanist, mm-hmm. you know, and all that. But she's also an indigenous woman and she's weaving in story, science, pop, science. Uh, it, it reminds me of Annie Dillard a little bit, the way that it's like philosophical. Did you ever read mm-hmm. like Pilgrim at Tinker Creek or anything? No, no, no. I think you might like Annie Dillard. Okay. okay. She's great. Um, wait, so not as connected to the like, but still very connected to nature. But anyway, so, so, so she's, there are parts in braiding sweetgrass that are just like, here's the history of pecan trees, or here's a myth from my culture, or this picture hangs above my lab and my students react in this way and that way. So anyway, continue. These yes. two Wendigo chapters. Yeah. So, um, the two Wendigo chapters, the first one is explaining what the Wendigo is um, and how it is expressed in cult, like colonial settler Mm -hmm. culture and exploitation of the resources and just total disrespect and lack of um, any sense of responsibility to the world around us or each other. How would you describe the Wendigo? Oh, insatiable consumption. It's a man. It's a monster, but it's a man. Yeah, yes. former man who chose to eat the flesh of other men. In a time in a time of scarcity. Yes. It was a myth told to people to be like, be careful or the Wendigo will get you. Don't. Don't go out at night or, mm-hmm. yeah, because the Wendigo will stalk, like, stalk you and eat you or consume you. But it's, but, but it, it was also a myth um, where the central story was it's worse to become 
uh, this Walking Dead. It's almost like a zombie. It kind of reminds me of there's like an Eastern, and and it's in certain like Buddhist traditions. I don't I I don't want to like I'll just say it just reminds me as a dilettante of this. I don't know how right I'm getting this. Probably not very, but of like the hungry ghost concept. Do hmm. you know that? No. Hungry ghosts are like people who are not like living or dead, but they're like cursed to like forever after they die, they like forever wander the earth in, in search of the same thing that they always wanted in life, but could never get, they were just like never satisfied. Mm -hmm. And so they die and just stay, stay never satisfied. Mm -hmm. And Wendigo is the same. I mean, to me, Wendigo is like, it almost seems like corny, how obvious a metaphor it is for like, capitalism or mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think whiteness, but it seemed like you had some ideas about whiteness in ravenous. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong, but also it's a, it's an old, I mean, it's a myth that Anishinaabeg told to each other to caution against cannibalism. Yeah. yeah like yeah, to yeah. make that a taboo. Right. Um, so it's not just whiteness, right? Like, like For there, sure. there are, there's like a core lesson of once you like, what's that threshold when you like stop, like when you when you lose yourself, mm-hmm. and then all that exists is the hunger and your insatiable hunger and right. greed and lack of reciprocity, lack of like giving of yourself, um, or sacrifice or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to say that. But even Martha in the film. So after Boyd comes back after eating parts of Reich um, so that he can survive and walk the three days on a broken yeah. leg, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> walk over the over the mountains, <laughs> yeah, yeah. back to the fort, <laughs> it was like, all right, like that really happened. Um, so in order to do that, he like consumed part of his comrade's body um, to get that essence and that power. And, um, and so... You could see, like, he had enough power to, like, energy or whatever to get back to the fort. And then when he was back at the fort, because he wasn't still consuming flesh, you could see that he was deteriorating. Yeah, yeah. He it was rough. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. I was just so, I was so impressed. I don't know if this was, like, before or after Memento or whatever. Yeah. But he looked like shit before he ate another human body. Mm -hmm. And just the way that they filmed that was hilarious. Number one, like horrifying and grotesque. Number two, for Boyd, like for for that character. Yeah. um, Physically deteriorating in that way. And so what the hell was I saying? So this is coming back to Wendigo, though. Um, he, He was trying to figure out a way to defeat Wendigo after he came back from eating flesh for the second time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Martha, do you remember that? He went into the yes. teepee to look for the, to look for the drawing again that George had showed him of right. the and Wendigo. The drawing is of like the Wendigo, like descending on a woman and, and like it look, it's just this like blurry kind of like swooping figure, like, on this, like, woman, like, splayed out. And it looks like a children's drawing, almost. It's very, like, rudimentary. What? What? Why are you, like, 
What? Why am I? I not? thought it was a good drawing. I'm not saying it's. I'm not. Saying <laughs> <laughs> I just mean it's like the head of the Wendigo is like a circle. The no, it would look better than that. I'm, I'm not. Sure. It did. It looked better than that. I didn't think it looked bad. I wasn't. I just meant it. Like it looked like a cave painting. No, you're being so weird. You need to edit that part out. Why? Why? What are you insinuating here? That's just weird that you said it like that. No, I didn't think. I ain't judging the the styles that were depicted on that on that skin thing that that he was looking at. But wait, why is it? What what am I? Say what you're trying to say to me. I don't think it was rudimentary or anything. I thought it was actually pretty but good. You're, but that's not what you're trying to say. You're trying to say that I was being racist, right? Not racist, but like... But like what? How are you evaluating it? Good. That's what I want you to say. How am I evaluating it? I don't know. I was just trying to describe the... the <laughs> it wasn't like stick figures or a circle. It, was, it wasn't stick figures, but it wasn't like the most detailed drawing. I Maybe it was impressionistic. I know you're implying some sort of colonial violence in my perspective here. And I'm not saying that I'm empty of that, but I really don't think that that's where I was coming from. You're looking at me with so much shade. I don't know. Okay. Challenge me. I'm available to be challenged on it. Well, I just didn't even think about the quality of the drawing, I guess. (laughs) I don't know why I mentioned it either. I wasn't trying. I was... (laughs) I was just trying to add color to the to the story. All right. <laughs> so, oh my God. so anyways, wow. Boyd went into the went into where George and Martha lived and was digging through instead of just like freaking talking to Martha. Like, right. Why didn't you? Why didn't right. you just ask? Super weird. So Martha like freaking stepped on on the thing that he was trying to look at, mm-hmm. and the then super beautiful. <laughs> Shut uh, up. <laughs> And so Boyd was like, tell me everything you know about Wendigo yeah. or whatever. And so just the her response. And then the fact that, like, you can tell nobody cared about what the hell she has to say. Yeah. She spoke very little. The person, the people that she was closest to was her, like, her brother and David Arquette's character. Yeah, who's the stoner who, like, smokes weed with them. Yeah, who, like, probably actually has conversations yeah. with them yeah, 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 and yeah. doesn't isn't a total shitbag right. to them. Um. And so, in the film, like, literally, she could have been and would have usually been treated as, like, a non-figure until maybe, like, some key moment. But I felt like Antonia Bird treated her and her brother, like, differently. Or I, I don't know. It felt, it felt, it felt less, um, what do you call it? Tokenizing? Tokenizing or like throw away or yeah. like this this um nonverbal woman like who gives a shit about her. Yeah. Like you can kind of tell that she was not showing everything oh, or all of her thoughts or even expressing, sure. right? Yeah. Um I think George was maybe a little more throwaway. Yeah. Than Martha was. Right. Also, Martha magically just like speaks a lot of English once George is dead and we're back at the camp. Like at first, Martha, like, doesn't say anything. George only speaks whatever his native language is. And then because they need someone to, like, talk about things, now Martha just kind of, like, speaks a lot of English, which I just thought was funny. Yeah, that's totally, like, 
survival strategy. No, totally, totally. Mental health yeah. strategy. Yeah, like yeah, I'm just yeah, gonna yeah. ignore you all. I don't yeah. know. I don't know English. No. <laughs> but were you? Ta- ta- are, were you gonna mention the moment in the tent when uh, Boyd goes in there and grabs that beautiful Mona Lisa like painting? <laughs> just kidding. <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me with such disapproval, but. Um, when, when she says to him, like, you saw the Wendigo, so you're going to die. Like, do you remember that moment? Right. But I think what she, what she was saying was there's no way for you to kill it. Yeah. Um, and then lectures him on like, have you ever sacrificed anything? Uh Right. And like, you have to actually give of yourself. Like, that's the difference between a Wendigo. Between a Windigo and not a Wind, you know, yeah. not a Windigo, yeah. And uh, that sets you up for like the third, the third half, or like the last quarter of the film, right? Um, and and yeah, it was. Oh, I don't know. There's just a lot. I don't feel like we're getting at the really juicy parts. <laughs> get get to it. Cut to a juicy part. Um, But, like, he was so wrapped up in his cowardice and, like, how he was um, almost frozen with indecision, right? Uh Indecision at the beginning, like, before the beginning, right? When he did the Mexican-American War Mm -hmm. cowardice thing where he literally lays down while his commanding officer is like, boy! (laughs) We're gonna die if you don't fight. Um, Like, he legit lays down, is paralyzed with fear, and just chooses not to do anything. He doesn't even lay down. He doesn't even jump down to the ground. He's even cowardly in how quickly he lays down. He slowly kneels and starts to lay down. Right. So, like, he, there's, like, so much indecisiveness Mm -hmm. in how he's living his life, even. Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting. And so... When confronted, and then there's like that indecisiveness or that internal struggle of whether or not to eat flesh with Colonel Ives now in the picture. Yeah. Um, and so just to see that descent into making a decision or not even a decision, because it, it almost felt like it wasn't a decision. Mm-hmm. It, what do you mean it? What was not a decision? When he finally, so Colonel Ives stabs him uh-huh. non-fatally, but he's bleeding out. Yeah. And he's just quickly, you know, getting weaker and weaker by the moment. Um, so he has to make this decision on whether or not he's going to eat this meat stew made out of the major mm-hmm. <laughs> that they just mm-hmm. killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, it, it was, it was brilliantly shot, in my opinion, brilliantly acted, because I wasn't sure in the two times that I just watched it this week, if Boyd understood that he was going to kill Ives, that he was going to get strong. You know what I mean? Mm. It wasn't clear to me that he was making that decision to eat that bowl of soup yeah. because he's like, I need the strength to, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like a worse filmmaker or worse, worse written film yeah. would have been like, and that, you know, like would write that out or would something. Would telegraph like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That he's now brave or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it's not clear at all, like, why he ends up eating that bowl of soup. Because yeah, he, yeah. like, gives in. And the way that that's shot and acted is so amazing. It looks like a freaking bot. It looks like an addict giving in. Yeah, for sure. Um, To their compulsion. 
And so, so just the fact that you didn't know if, like, why he made that decision, if it's another cowardly thing or not, because he didn't want to die, you know, I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was really amazing. Totally. And then that, the fact that they also didn't just like punch you in the face with like, when did he make this decision to like, I'm going to kill Colonel Ives? It's like he made it sometime between him, you know, (laughs) consuming, getting really, really healthy and being chained up in his room. So like, I'm, I'm almost curious. I'm, I'm really glad that they didn't spell it all out, but it definitely was from Martha telling him, like explaining how to, that you can't just cure a Wendigo. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's not going to be that easy. You have to give something of yourself. Um, the, his like hitting bottom, <laughs> that's what I'm going to call it. Yeah. Hitting bottom, uh-huh. eating the major. And then this like resolution that he's going to kill himself and Ives. When do you think that comes because I, I don't know if he even, I mean, at the very end, he slams Ives into this giant bear trap and he gets snapped up as well. So they're both stuck in this giant bear trap and that's how they die. Mm-hmm. And there's this, and Ives is making this argument about like, just want you to know, if you die before me, I'm totally eating you. Out of you. Yeah. <laughs> and if I die before you, the only question is, are you going to eat or are you going to not? Um, and I think that that is a really, so even at the end, I don't know how much cowardice Boyd sheds. Like he's pretty cowardly up, even up until the very end. Mm -hmm. The, the, the moment of decision he made was slamming, uh, Ives into the bear trap and being with him. But even after that decision is made, he still feels pretty, he goes back to being a little sniveling and indecisive. Well, I mean, I think he makes the decision when he killed Colonel Hart, if that's that dude's name. Yeah. Um, because they have that little exchange about Aristotle wasn't talking about happiness. Aristotle was talking about the truth. Right. And what the truth is. And that snapped Colonel Hart back to, like, what the fuck are we actually doing as cannibals? <laughs> are, do, okay, are we really committed okay, with this? That's the thing I've, I've heard people complain about is Hart's change of heart, where he's just like, now, please kill me because I don't want to be a Wendigo anymore. Yeah, I think... And you think and, it's the Aristotle stuff. Oh, yeah. And okay. then the whole... He tries to explain, you know, it's hard when you're, like, he's not alone in it. He fucking has the other dude. He has Colonel Ives on his ass about it. Um, And he's afraid of dying. Like, he was on the brink of death. He was basically dead until Mm -hmm. um, Colonel Ives, like, fed him his soldiers. Oh, my God. It's just horrible to think about. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, But, but yeah, it's, it's, the thing that seems more, um, confusing to me is like how he killed david arquette's character and the horses like that like really but you mean how Hart, Hart was able to be so savage yeah oh and then put the i mean i like i i appreciate the stylistic choice yeah. and the shot that then came from that um, of putting david arquette up on the roof yes <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like what why yeah. did you do that yeah um 
And then having the blood fall onto Martha's face. Yes. That was really interesting. Um, I think there's something interesting when you said Hart got fed his own men. Because that's the thing. Hart became a Wendigo kind of accidentally. Like, he didn't choose to start eating people. Mm -hmm. Ives fed him people. And then Hart's like, and then it was too late. Mm -hmm. Similarly... Uh, Boyd didn't choose to be a Wendigo. The uh, the initial blood, if that's his origin story, mm-hmm. and he didn't eat anyone else, fell into his mouth accidentally. He ate Reich out of necessity, like in a way that, like, I don't know. I, I he could have died. He he could have chosen to die. I mean, he could have. That that was a choice. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't know. I think it, the urge to survive is is strong, and if someone is. Maybe this is wrong of me, but to me there is a difference between someone who, between a cannibal who eats a person who has died versus a cannibal who kills someone in order to eat them. Yes. And they even, they, oh, I love Antonio Bird and whoever wrote this because he even showed that progression. So like Boyd takes Reich's coat and -hmm. is like, you're not going to need this anymore. Right. So it's like, What's the difference between a coat and the flesh in your body if you don't need it anymore? Right. Like, they totally walk you through those decisions. Totally. Well, and then in that moment, that acting moment you talked about with Boyd, that's another moment where he, like, was being fed. Well, and then there were all of those one-liners, like, oh, my God, why were they... They kept quoting Benjamin Franklin, too. (laughs) (laughs) Like, eat to live. Don't live to eat. Yeah. Um, different things like that. And and then one of they're just like sitting around with the stew and they're all eating. And I think it's Hart who goes, well, isn't this civilized? Mm-hmm. Um, but the point being about being accidentally turned into a Wendigo, I think is really powerful because if we think about addiction, capitalism, any sort of insatiable hunger exploitative mindset we all have it in us and it's it's done unconsciously like i never chose to you know adopt like a hustle culture mindset but it was pounded into me and so unless i actively check it i have to it, like it will come out. Like th- these things come out in default because of our culture. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's yeah, yeah. I agree, and I think it takes effort to not fall into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So sure, I agree with that. And and I think with Mar- so okay, what do you make of Martha at the very end? Um, looking into the barn. Where Ives and Boyd are, I don't know if they've, they're in the bear trap yet, but they're about to be in the bear trap. And she just looks at them, she sees them at each other's throats, and she just like, literally like, makes a beeline out of camp. She's like, and I'm out forever. (laughs) Just like walking, doesn't grab anything, just like, completely leaves the camp. What do you think that says about her approach to the Wendigo? I think she understood what Boyd was doing, which was sacrificing himself to kill the win- to kill the Wendigos. Sure. 
That's what I think. Including himself. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And so she was just like, she knew that it was going to end and she's like, well, there's nothing left here for me. Also, I ain't going to fuck with these people no more. That's kind of what I took it as is like a, one of the ways to respond to the Wendigo if it can't be defeated Mm -hmm. is to run away. It's not just run away. Like she didn't get help for him. Like, she understood that Boyd was killing himself. Yeah. So she wanted to, like, make sure that that shit happened. Sure, sure, sure. And that dudes, that those two men were going to die. Yeah. And that she ain't going to be around for... Like, I think... I wonder if she then realizes, like, this is what America is about. And there's there's a whole... Okay, the other thing, too, with Ravenous, why people complain about it, is because it's real... Um, some of the parts are really punching you in the face with the metaphors. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so there's a scene where um Ives is talking about manifest destiny, mm-hmm. and uh Boyd is looking like shit because he hasn't eaten a human mm-hmm. in a minute, and there's an American flag like flapping in the distance right, right, right. in between them. And I just love. I don't know. I I love the simplicity of we're gonna talk about American colonialism. And Manifest Destiny and the connection to the Wendigo myth and having that be a movie. I think that's super cool in yeah, my opinion. Totally. And it's like, quote, simple, but it's also not that simple. No, it's super complex. Yeah. And like, there were all these different ways that they could have explored that. So, and they did it and they did it with humor. They did it without like trying to manipulate, like, like, sure, some of it is like, a, you can't help. But like music will manipulate how you feel about a scene. But it didn't feel like this is the most epic shit that you've ever seen. Do you feel like complete garbage now because you're an American? Or you know what I mean? It didn't it wasn't like trying to make you feel like garbage because you're an American. It's trying to like And then the other thing too is all these people are not American that are making this movie. So like the director, yeah. um, the lead actors. So like these main character, these main people that are actually getting it onto screen, yeah. are not Americans, which I really appreciate. What is Robert Car? Well, I guess Guy Pearce is Australian. Uh, Antonio Bird is British, okay. and so is Robert Carlyle. He's mm-hmm. Scottish. Okay, um, pretty sure he's Scottish. He was in Train Spotting. That's why I knew him, and I was like, oh, I like that guy from Train Spotting. But right, anyway, right, 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 right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I I appreciated the ways that it didn't like punch you in the face. In terms of um, what the characters are thinking or, like, how they're feeling or something. Mm-hmm. But it was also kind of, like, self-conscious or something in terms of, like, this is – America is an absurdity. Manifest destiny is an absurdity. Capitalism is an absurdity. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, right. right. Because it's, like – it. That's the thing that I think makes it, in some ways, like you're saying, really obvious. But in other ways, it's a metaphor for so many different things that it's like, okay, well, if your metaphor is for anything that is voracious and wants its own survival more than anything else, at the cost of anything, it's it's hard for that to be super on the nose because there's a million noses it could be. It's like, well, it's about capitalism, but it's about America, but it's about patriotism, but it's about religion, but it's about addiction, you know, like anything. Um, I also thought 
in terms of how it can be killed, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking, well, how is, like, if the Wendigo can't be killed, and I, then, then how does Ives die at the end? So Ives dies, but there's other Wendigos. Well, yes. Ex- and I think exactly because, because I was like, because it sounds like the Wendigo has to choose to die. Like it has to like willingly die. Like that's how Hart died. And that's, or, that seemed to be what Martha was saying is like, you have to give the, like the Wendigo only takes and that's why it can't die. Cause it, it doesn't give its life to anything, but I did give his life because he thought the Wendigo spirit would live on through Bert Boyd. All right. He trusted that Boyd would eat him. Yeah. It's also, so Colonel Hart was also a Wendigo that chose. Exactly. That gave itself up. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Hmm. And I think another way that this movie gets at, um, and basically anytime you say, hmm, or that's an interesting point, those are hope's points. Like, just to be clear, like, those are the ones okay. that, that are always, but, um, one of the, so, so that good line when, uh, Boyd snaps them both into the bear trap and, Ives looks at him and he's like, that was sneaky. The, the thing that I can't say that reminded me of, that reminded Hope of, was <laughs> the like coyote trickster god miss. That like the way to beat this thing is not through, like, yes, it's funny for in the middle of a death scene for someone to go, that was sneaky, like right before they die. But it's also like, that's how you beat one of these things is trickiness, like sneakiness, mm-hmm. not just immediately trying to overpower it. I thought, and yeah. I thought that was interesting. And that makes sense in Breeding Sweetgrass, too. Right. That's in Defeating. There's a chapter in Breeding Sweetgrass called Defeating Wendigo. And spoiler? I don't really know. But um, <laughs> To spoil the, the <laughs> everything. ecology storytelling book. Right. <laughs> but um, the way that they defeat, the way that... Wendigo is defeated is through trickery mm-hmm. and the the key of that is given to the speaker to the narrator um by the their like trickster hero trickster yeah. archetype yes, right yes um so that is actually a really great connection again with this movie right um and that's totally what he did you're totally right he like gave in he hit bottom yeah. He surrendered. Yeah. Um and the the fact that these that these uh phrases these keywords were also brought up multiple times in Ravenous made the addiction stuff more clear to me in Which these keywords. Surrender. Mm, yeah. Um the way that Ives was talking to that's probably going to get picked up right. No, it's it's okay. good. That being <laughs> Chickens, the cat, drinking the water. If, if it does get picked up, it deserves to be. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, in Defeating Wendigo chapter in Breeding Sweetgrass, um, they use Wendigo's nature against him mm-hmm. in terms of, like, he has insatiable appetite. So what happens when you feed him 
high doses of of buckthorn berries, which are poison, basically. Yes, which are like a laxative, but then in huge dose, it's like you can freaking die from like barfing and pooping everything on your body. (laughs) Like, um, and so that was like the key of breaking the Wendigo to the point where they might consume medicine and they might be so exhausted from literally shitting and vomiting themselves right to like hear the healing stories um that the narrator would was willing to share and also to heal to receive the medicines yeah um not just of the narrator but of the of the plants that stood with the narrator that died because the forest was clear cut in the winter. Right. And those plants weren't going to survive the summer right. because they relied and were depending on the forest to be there. But the Wendigo like destroyed. took, it destroyed the forest. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's just it. I really love this braiding sweetgrass book. I think that there's so many more connections that we probably could talk about with Ravenous, the movie. Um, yeah. So it's just so good. And I think that point that it required trickery is a great one. And I think that's probably intentional. And if it's oh, not for sure. And if it's not, then, you know, it's just another example of like art being smarter than the artists. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, well, and viewers being smarter than the art. Like if we see the meaning in it, well, now it's a, it's a collaboration between us and Antonia bird mm-hmm. where we've added this meaning to it. It's ours to, decide that it meant trickery, you know, was important. And I, and I also wondered too, if that trickery key and metaphor or whatever is also expressed in the way that she chose to, she and the writer chose to do this genre bending with comedy and horror. Right. Um, and that these tonal shifts and the total absurdity of these things is so that the medicine can go down easier or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's interesting because I'm thinking it's, it's, it's almost what makes it challenging. Cause this movie was a bomb at the box office mm-hmm. and those things are like why it's seen as a failure commercially because it didn't go down. You know, people weren't just like, ah, this is a horror movie, or ah, this is a comedy. We know how to process this. Antonia Bird's like, well, this is a fucked up story that says a lot of intense things about life, but there's funny parts of it. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of blood and skin <laughs> being hanging everywhere. And it's like, I think that is, it, it's it's really interesting that this movie about capitalism in some ways about the like insatiable appetite colonialism sure any any big oppressive force like that that it chose such a genre bending approach which then made it not quite palatable to that system like it it didn't blow up in it like it didn't make millions and millions of dollars In the capitalist system, it, like, was kind of the buckthorn tea, where it's, like, only people who, like, are willing to be patient and believe that this movie has something to tell them 
are going to be able to hear it. Otherwise, other people are just going to barf it out and not be willing. That's pretty funny. <laughs> um, no, that is true, too. We also have to talk about the music. Yes. Because Damon Albarn. And Michael Neiman. Michael Neiman. Uh, who's Michael Neiman? Because I didn't know who that was. He was like, I don't know if he's still alive, but he was just, he does a lot of soundtracks. Okay. So like he did the pian, the pianist. The pianist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. The piano. Do you know? The piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the pianist is something completely is, different. Yeah, the Adrian Brody. You know, yeah. You're talking about the, um. The New Zealand one. Yeah, yeah. With Harvey Keitel and yes. Anna Paquin. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the soundtrack is fucking crazy. It's awesome. It's I agree, but people hate. I think Roger it. Ebert hated it. Like really? specifically said, "The fuck is this?" <laughs> it's so noticeable. Yeah, but I think that's. I need to know more about Brecht. I know like the deal with Bertolt Brecht and like his whole thing being like make making you aware you're watching theater the whole time you're watching, not like fully allowing you to get lost in the world. Mm-hmm. So I could be, this is another thing where I'm probably out of my depth by calling this soundtrack Brechtian, but I feel like it was that where it was like, when you said the movie wasn't just giving you like, Oh, it's the most epic story. So much of that is that isn't in the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. If it had a different soundtrack where like there were swell, there were no swells. Yeah. There was like unsettling little plinks there were like big corny like like just the weirdest shit where it like always reminded you like you are watching a movie mm-hmm. like this is is this funny is it horrifying maybe both this this music is so jarring and not what we think of as fitting with the scene that it's kind of up to you to decide mm-hmm. don't the music isn't going to like it almost functioned as if there were no music in a mm. way. Hmm. That's interesting too. You know? Yeah. What do you like about the soundtrack? Um a lot of the a lot of the unsettling tracks were like built off of like even just one note. Yes. Or like a simple melody. Mm-hmm. And then so it wasn't swelling, but it was like a creepy of evolution mm-hmm, <laughs> or something mm-hmm. of like that one one note or that simple melody or something. Yeah. So I thought that was really effective in terms of like melancholic, kind of creepy, kind of like do you know what I'm saying? So oh, the, totally. It, it worked on multiple levels. Yes. And you didn't necessarily know where it was going or what it was trying to make you feel. And then some of right. them, but then some of the, uh, some of the stuff, like there was literally a chase scene that was like, Antonio Bird is telling you that this is funny. Um, and the music. The one, like when they're at the cave yeah. and he's chasing them around. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so there's different moments like that as well, where, yeah, I'm just like, it's such a weird film that I really love. And like to think about. Um, but I I remember that. So I'm pretty sure that I downloaded after I rented the movie. I somehow figured out how to download it. <laughs> and 
the other thing that I downloaded was the soundtrack, and the soundtrack's really good. I think. The soundtrack is so hard to find out. It's only on YouTube that I could find it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's yeah. one of those things where I'm like, if, if I'm at a record store, I'm going to look in the like CD bin to see if they have a Ravenous soundtrack. That's the kind of thing that will still be cheap. Like no one's like valuing it super highly, mm-hmm. but I bet is findable. Chickens is just on my nose, looking so cute, lying with his cheek on your notes. This is what he does. Like he'll see me knitting, and then he'll be look at us. He's like, no, do not take this away from me. Yeah, I respect that, boy. Give me back my thing. Thank you. <laughs> you can lay my book, though. <laughs> okay. But, well, it seems like you are ready to be done talking about this. Actually, no. Okay, because you keep, you keep like, leaning into moments where you're, like, almost kind of sighing. But, but where you're, no, in a, in a, in a fine way, but you're like, they feel like ending thoughts for you, where you're like, it's just a great movie that I enjoy thinking about, but I'm wondering, are there other things that we haven't gotten to that you're like, I can't believe we haven't even touched on X or Y or. Yeah. Let me look at my notes. Please. So when Ives talks about his origin story, do you Mm -hmm. remember he talks about how he had suicidal ambition? Yes, yes. That was such a weird (laughs) phrase. I thought he had tuberculosis and he was trying to go to a sanatorium or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing that also made me kind of be like, I think he is a colonel in the U.S. Army was because he said he had suicidal ambition and he was talking to an Indian scout. Mm-hmm. And the Indian scout is the one that gave him the idea of the eating the flesh to absorb. Right, right. Um, to absorb power. And that's why I think that's just wild. And so I think he was telling the truth where Colonel Ives misled that wagon party. Mm-hmm. So when he was posing as Calhoun. Yeah. He was talking about this Colonel Ives, this bastard, wish never met him. He's like, that's me. I was doing that. <laughs> but he's like, claimed that there was a shorter route. And it almost seemed like he did want to put himself in this path where he would just be a few days away from the fort. Oh, interesting. Right? If he's wow. if that really happened. So that's why I think, that's why I'm like, this motherfucker had a plan. Oh, for sure <laughs> he had a plan. Yeah. He had a plan. But not just that, like that he intentionally did not like kill to kill um colonel hart when he was like doing his massacre oh you think he had a plan to end up and be able to be in charge of this outpost the whole time wow yeah yeah absolutely i buy that because he was like, and then the Indian scout is the first person I ate. <laughs> it was like that Indian scout. There's no Indian scout in the, you know, in the in Calhoun story. Was there? I think there. No. Yeah, you're right. There is. I don't think there's an Indian scout. That's like Indian scout for the military or some shit. Right. right I don't know. Right, but right. so that's why I think he's the colonel. And I think he fucking had a plan. No, of course. Yeah. And I don't think there's any doubt he's the colonel. And he's real smart. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and then I was just interested in the polarities too beyond between Boyd and Ives and how they're basically struggling over the same shit, but one is just surrendered in a different yeah, way. Yeah. 
and the other one was like struggling with it. Um, so Boyd was struggling and Ives was just full blown. Like I'm all about this life. <laughs> I'm about to eat people. Totally. Well, to me, if we're, if we're using the addiction metaphor, mm. Ives seems like he's thriving, but as a sober guy, it, Ives is the vision of being high or being drunk that I have in my mind is possible. Mm-hmm. But then whenever I was actually higher drunk was like, it didn't actually look like that. Like, I think it was just all fun and games, but there's a reason that I'm sober now. And it's because I couldn't be Ives. Ives mm-hmm. is a, is a figment of my imagination, a way of me gilding the past and being like, Oh yes. Like, the the glory days of me, you know, getting high and drinking and being lonely and pining after people who didn't like me, you know, like, oh, what wonderful times those were. Um, yeah. There's also the thing of like, I've like, uh, he kept the rosary off of the dead body that he must, he must have sure. stolen that. Sure. Maybe from the person who's named Calhoun. I don't know. But even when he came back as Colonel Ives, he had that on his wrist. Mm-hmm. And then in the final scene, he painted a blood cross on his Yeah. Forehead. What do you make of that? I have no idea. <laughs> like, I think it is. And, and they did make the connection. George made the connection in the beginning of the film when he started talking about Wendigo, where it's like, mm-hmm. well, white men eat body of Christ every Sunday. Right. So y'all are fucking cannibals already. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I don't know if it's as simple as that. It might, it might be right. I don't know, but yeah. So what he would be saying, like, I am. Yeah. What's like Ash Wednesday. That's the day when everyone gets the ash yeah. on their head. What is it? What's the purpose of Ash Wednesday? It's like before Easter. Isn't that the beginning of Lent? I don't, or the end. You were no, Catholic. It's the beginning right? of Lent. Is it? Yeah. Okay. What Pretty is Ash sure. Wednesday? I'm not, I wasn't angry with Catholics. So I don't know. Um, you burn the palms that you get from Palm Sunday. Okay. And then you put the ashes on your forehead to mark you as a Christian. As a saint. Okay. Not a saint, but as a Christian. Sure, sure. But like one of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think it's the beginning of Lent. Okay. So it's... Now I want to look that up. <laughs> it's him? No. It, who cares? It, I care! Okay. Well, you can look it up then. But it, it's him marking himself as... A Christian, I think. Well, no, but the blood cross... Right. Is right. him marking himself as... Is he saying, I'm the Wendigo Christ? Or is he saying, I'm part of the Wendigo tribe? What do you think... Or I am I am a participant in the eating of the body. Sure. Instead of body of Christ, it's just bodies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> eating bodies. <laughs> I'm a I'm a follower of the blood or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ooh, that's gruesome. <laughs> oh, I really want to say that I really love um, Robert Carlyle's performance and Guy Pierce. The though those two. Uh, it was just so good. I don't even know. Yeah. What to say. Robert Carlyle is a fucking, he steals the show. I mean, I feel like he is like so charismatic and mysterious. That moment when Carlyle, they're outside the cave and Carlyle is like going crazy mm-hmm. is like basically everything short of foaming at the mouth. I guess to throw them off 
the track of what he's doing, which is like digging up that knife that he can kill them with. But it was like so genuinely confusing. <laughs> and, and he was just such a perfect actor for pulling off the, these shifts in tone. Yes. Very, very, uh, super good at it. And also his just like features, like mm-hmm. his beady little eyes. Mm-hmm. And you can't tell if he even has brown eyes or if they're just like dilated pupils <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, it's just so perfect for that character as well. Um, yeah, he did an amazing job. And I just really appreciated too that when he showed up at the beginning of the film, he was like emaciated uh-huh. and looked so haggard or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when he showed up again to the fort, he was so debonair, had Healthy, like, oh my glowing. goodness, glowing, like had a tan. I was yeah. like, where'd you get this tan from? <laughs> yeah. Like, wasn't it winter? Like, how did this happen? Right. Um, so I just, oh, he was, he was really good. And then even the creepy-ass subtle way that he reveals himself to Boyd is like, okay, gaslighting is over. You know who I am. (laughs) For a while, I was like, man, how long is this movie going to play out whether or not this is a different guy? Mm -hmm. Where I was kind of enjoying, I'm like, holy shit, are they going to try to make us think that it might actually be a different guy and not Calhoun? (laughs) Um, And I'm fine with when they did break that reality but it was pretty impressive that like i mean that takes a very specific kind of actor to make you wonder if seeing the exact same actor on screen (laughs) is a different person somehow like that's yeah that's impressive yeah and i thought it was i personally think the movie was super tight um i don't know what did you think of it the pacing and everything I thought the pacing was great, but I wouldn't say it was tight. I would say it would, I would say it kind of like accordion. There were parts where it was fast, when it was Mm -hmm. slow, um, when it was goofy, when it was intense. And I think that's what people seem to not like about it. And I I understand not liking that about it, Mm -hmm. but I didn't feel like it was. It didn't feel like there was a bunch of fat to me where I'm like, oh, why was that even in there? Um, but it didn't feel like it was just like efficient storytelling, the Hemingway of movies or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? True, true. So my final question. Yes. But are we, but have we exhausted your notes, your, your thoughts? No. No? But I also, I know that it's, like, long now. Well, what do you mean long? No, don't worry about that. The the people, okay, Bettina, let's think about this. The people who are listening to the Afterlife interview podcast Mm -hmm. from the comedian who is in a coma. Okay. And they're listening specifically to the month where, (laughs) where he's thrown out the format entirely just to talk about... (laughs) Horror movies, and not really even very classic horror movies. Uh-huh. Ravenous, a movie that, according to Rotten Tomatoes, less than half the people who've seen it like. <laughs> it's uh, so good, the people who are listening for that, I think they're down with the hearing longer, longer thoughts about that. Okay. <laughs> so what? What <laughs> else you got? Um, I like the mirror. I mean, this is all maybe like I don't know if it's in the writing or if it was Antonia Bird. But there was just a lot of mirroring from the beginning to the end. Okay. Or the end to the beginning. And so one of the examples was like Colonel Hart and his walnuts. 
Yes. And these walnuts look like brains. <laughs> Whoa. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, that's cute. That's like a cute, um, that's a cute thing to show because he like needed a, he slammed a book to crack the walnuts before. Uh-huh. But then they showed that he had supernatural strength right. that he could like crush the walnuts open. Right. Um, so there's just like subtle shit like that all up in the writing. So it's like, is it the Hemingway of films? No, but is it like well executed oh, and well written? Hell sure. yeah. Like yeah. you can like analyze it. And I'm, I'm fine with this quote unquote simplicity of that maybe. Um, but like I appreciate it too. I appreciate some of the thoughtfulness that goes into it. And that's also not just like punching you in the face. Definitely. Um, but yeah, let me look at the rest of my notes here. But yeah, the happiness over truth or. That that mix up, and that that was um, the thing that actually got Hart to sh- to remember and remind himself that this is not like him, mm. that this is just Ives. So, do you think the Wendigo like pursues happiness at all, or what it uh, what it views to be happiness at all costs, or this attempt to be satiated? Yeah, but it's never going to be satiated. But but, right? but it's like a you... bodily, it's almost like a bodily thing. But do you think the Wendigo cares about truth? No. Okay. Oh, no. You would say Wendigo cares about a specific version of happiness. Right. And yep. thinks that it knows what makes it happy. Right. Even though it's never happy. Right. Or it's never going to be satisfied. Yes. Right. And so, so yeah. So it's like, why even live? And I think that's where the cowardice thing was. Like, he didn't want to die. He's afraid of death. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the movie, Boyd, I'm talking about Boyd, sorry. (laughs) By the end of the movie, Boyd was willing to sacrifice and willing to give of himself. And wasn't afraid of death anymore. But I think he was afraid of death. But he also was like, now this is what I got to do. But also I'm scared of dying. And that, that death scene was brave but also showed him like struggling with death almost yeah i don't know i would say right well so this would be a good time and this doesn't have to be the final question it's just the only thing i have left on the table (laughs) but if you have other things left on the table we should definitely address those okay um but it's a natural transition because my question for the purpose of this is your afterlife is what does this movie have to say about death? Does it have anything to teach us about death? You know, what's its view? Do we agree with that? You know, and and in thinking about Boyd accepting death or not accepting death, I do think he does accept it in some way at the end. Um, But he doesn't seem to have this huge... um, he hasn't redeemed himself from all his cowardice. Mm-hmm. He just, he, he did just enough for it to matter. You know, he slammed them both into the bear trap to kill the Wendigos, other than the general who ate the stew, which is a whole other thing, which we don't even really know how to deal with. But for all intents and purposes, he was able to kill the Wendigos because he, in that moment, took the step and slammed them into the bear trap. Even though afterward he seems as indecisive as ever. It's like he slammed in a bear trap and he still is like, not sure what he wants to do. (laughs) Like if he wants to eat 
really? eyes afterward or not. Why did you think that? I don't know. That's just. I mean, maybe I'm like misremembering it for my own interpretation. What, what did you What did you think in that moment? Do you think he was still a coward? Do you think he had come to a definite conclusion of some sort? I think he knew that he had to sacrifice himself. Yes. And I think he was scared of dying. Okay. But he knew that there was what what I think the film says is that there's worse fates than death. Totally. Yeah. I think absolutely. Yeah, because I was going to say it says something about sacrifice, mm-hmm. and I think yeah, it's it's saying that like not choosing sacrifice it r- resigns you to fates worse than death. Or yeah, or just choosing life for life's sake. Yeah. Or I mean. The life that Ives was promising and kind of advertising was like, you're going to look like a badass, mm-hmm. eat well. We're basically going to have the run of this fort and like, it'll be great or whatever. But then it's like, what else do you want in your life? Yeah. It's just the classic like wellness, <laughs> American dream, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say, vision of happiness, which is like. No more clouds ever again. And white white teeth and three square meals and, you know, your the tooth goes like, ding, and you're, like, shining and smiling and no one, like, he might as well have been like, and no one has any problems ever again forever. Right. But then you also knew that underneath, like, it won't be satisfying course, for anyone. Like, it's going to be a fucking shit show and yeah. horrible and... They just will keep expanding or something. I don't know. But um, so, yeah, so that's what I think it's saying. It's like there's worse fates than death. What's the point of living if you're just insatiable and that like you really don't have any other goals or pursuits other than your health? <laughs> you know what I mean? Your health right. and the virility of your body. Um so I don't know. I have to think on that too because is that like some kind of weird? So I think the thing that makes it more enriched is braiding sweetgrass and the stuff that Robin Wall Kemmerer talks about in Defeating Windigo. And one of the ways that she describes, um, like the two sides that are fighting. So there's like the Wendigo and then there's the life side is that it's like, we're trying to fight with our song against the Wendigo's shrieks. Mm-hmm. So the shrieking for me is like, there's something that we used to talk about when um me and Dave, when you and I were in an organization together and there's a really great John Berger essay on horizons um and it's like a meditation almost on hieronymus bosch's millennium triptych mm-hmm. which just shows like heaven the garden of earthly delights and then a hell panel mm-hmm. and in the hell panel um there's no horizon there's a bunch of just random shit that's happening on the hell panel that is nonsensical mm-hmm. and so when i think of song like community song Versus a windigo shriek. Yeah. That's what I think of. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the hell, the hell panel is like, it's not meant to make sense. You're literally looking at it and there's like, I don't know, like a frog with a, I can't even, do you know what I'm saying? Like there's like a frog eating a 
a little person <laughs> yeah. or something. Trying There's to like describe our anonymous <laughs> botch painting on a podcast <laughs> is a very interesting. Yeah, the hell, the hell part. Of yeah, the- yeah, totally. <laughs> so like none of that shit's supposed to make sense. Mm-hmm. You literally everything is polluted in and like there's clouds and you can't you cannot see a horizon mm-hmm. like there's no sense to be made and that is a windigo like that's the windigo's interiority like there's no sense it's just flailing and shrieking of desire and insatiability and god just like imagine living like that <laughs> it's horrible that's what we've been living through right in the united states mm-hmm. like period Period, like period, um, but especially like after advertising and you know, <laughs> all these different things yeah. that I've just and the internet, blah blah blah. Like uh, John John Berger in that essay also talks about how the internet is accelerating all of this, where you have images next to images. No, none of this shit's supposed to make sense. It's even hard to make sense or have like an idea of where you're heading, <laughs> let alone what you're look like making sense of what you're looking at. Um, and so, so yeah, what the, what is the point of having life if you don't have the stories to make sense of what is happening or your role or your position in it? And then in Braiding Sweetgrass, she also talks about braiding the hair of Mother Earth, that the braid symbolizes a, a unification or like, you know, you're literally braiding mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. And that in defeating Wendigo, she explains that the Wendigo's braid has come undone. Mm. So there's that that pattern making or making sense of right. or like um, unification of intention, mind, body, and spirit is broken with the Wendigo. And so for me, like com- bringing braiding sweetgrass and ravenous together... I was a little bit nervous, to be honest, to rewatch Ravenous this week. Why? Because I was like, maybe it's not as good as I remember. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> like, and like, I wonder how much, you know, like this, the stuff in Braiding Sweetgrass is going to like line up a little bit or line up at all with uh, Ravenous. And I was really impressed with actually. Yeah, more people should read Braiding Sweetgrass and watch Ravenous. Well, yeah, even just hearing that, even if you're, I mean, people should absolutely read Braiding Sweetgrass. And if they had a choice between listening to this podcast and reading Braiding Sweetgrass. uh, Read Braiding Sweetgrass. I was going to say read Braiding Sweetgrass, but then I'm like, maybe they should listen to it. No, but they should definitely read Braiding Sweetgrass. But even just hearing as much as we've been talking about it, I think the thing because I, I didn't read the chapters until after watching the movie, oh. but I did read one page. Mm-hmm. I read one page to Hope where I'm like, this is what Fatina wants to talk about in relation to it. And what it did was it flagged the Wendigo stuff in Ravenous as important. Mm-hmm. And I think people who watch Ravenous without thinking about the centrality of the Wendigo... I mean, the, the film does a good job of being like, the Wendigo is pretty important. But I think reading the Breeding Sweetgrass stuff even hammers it home more and in a deeper way. Um, but one thing that you're reminding me of, because you also suggested we read the, I, what's, I forget what the chapter's called, Falling Sky Woman, um, which is like the first, it, it literally is like, 
the Wendigo is like the second Wendigo essay is the last essay in the book and except for a pro an epilogue, but the falling sky woman is the first essay and, um, the falling sky woman, she says that she becomes indigenous by thinking about, uh, you know, it's this woman who fell to earth. Basically that's a huge oversimplification, but like, She's not from Earth. She's from the sky world. She falls to Earth. She was an immigrant, but she became indigenous by thinking about future generations. And that, to me, I don't know if... It, I would be curious for people who have listened to these episodes more recently or who choose to go back and listen to the first few episodes of the podcast and then leading into your episode. Because you were in the, like teens, I think, or like episode 11 or 12. And you were one of the first people who answered the question, what do you hope happens when you die in a way that was not about your personal consciousness of whatever an afterlife might be, but was about what your legacy on earth might be. And you talked about the final five campaign to get rid of prisons and all this stuff. And it like, it literally blew my mind. It's one of the, well, I guess not literally, but it blew my <laughs> mind. And it, and it is one of the biggest lessons I've taken from this show is first of all, how often white people just answer about individual consciousness. <laughs> like the people who talk about generational thinking, it's, it's mostly not white people, but also how, how that is a, how important it is to think about that stuff. And I think what the Wendigo doesn't do is consider anything but its own propagation. Like, you know, with climate, the climate crisis, like is because of Wendigoism, you know, Mm -hmm. like if we are like the only way to mitigate it is to stop treating things like they're infinite Mm -hmm. and disposable um, and thinking about, you know, that's the classic thing of like, well, I'm not going to be around to experience it too late for me. So my fucking grandkids can deal with whatever garbage comes up. And (laughs) literally, yeah, yeah, literally. And I don't, I don't know. I just, I think it's cool. It's a nice, um, bookend here mm. with your first appearance on the show to be talking about two pieces of art that in different ways um, reflect the importance of thinking beyond your own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beyond your own consumption and has uh, something to do with sacrifice. Yeah. Cause that's a word that came up um, in ravenous as well is the Wendigo is incapable of sacrificing or just not taking and taking and taking. And so if you're talking about environmental catastrophe, um, like what is actually required, it's like, I'm not the person who's like, everybody needs to stop drinking out of straws. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I understand that it's, it's huge, but those huge shifts that would need to happen for us to avoid maximum catastrophe Mm -hmm. and like massive i mean it's already kind of happening right like death and mayhem is going to be 
us having to sacrifice materially. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, there's, there's braiding sweetgrass is really beautiful because they also talk about, um, dang, my cat is sleeping on my book. I'm so Mm -hmm. sorry, baby. (laughs) Just took my book away from my cat. Um, but I want to get the exact chapter name right. The people of the seventh fire. Mm. So the people of the seventh fire, that beautiful chapter is right before defeating Wendigo. Um, and I don't know if you read that chapter too. No, but it's, it's, literally talking about environmental catastrophe and destruction and that the people of the eighth fire. So I don't know. I can't, I can't summarize her beautiful writing, (laughs) but it's talking about how we are walking on a path and we are at a crossroads and the one on the, one of them is green Verdant has grass as the path, and the other is embers mm. and like decimated forests. You know, the sky is gray, the sky is black and shit. Yeah. And that, um, the narrator, I, I think it's Robin Welcomer speaking for herself yeah. as the narrator, um, is like watching as the people of the eighth fire are carrying these embers and this is all like related to these ancient myths that Anishinaabeg people tell themselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it starts, you know, like starts with people, the first fire all the way through the seventh okay. and the eighth. Um, and that I think it's like her dream and she sees the people walking towards this crossroads and has no idea what choice is going to be made. And how that choice is not just, you know, those people that are walking, (laughs) but um, it's all of our choice. Like, what are we choosing? Are we choosing life or are we choosing death? And yeah, and these, these choices will work, will, a choice for life will require some amount of sacrifice. Yeah. And she does a really good job in that last, in the defeating Wendigo chapter of, I mean, it's still, she's talking about it on like a surreal, imagistic, metaphorical level about how to defeat the Wendigo. And because part of, you know, you you hear the kind of stuff you're talking about in the Seven Fire, the Seven Fires essay, and this idea of like, you know, seeing climate catastrophe or anything that could be a ravenous style or Anishinaabe style Wendigo. And I think it's very easy, especially for white people and privileged people who don't have to fight mm-hmm. or think they don't have to fight, at least for a little while, um, to get overwhelmed and to go, well, what's the point? You know, it's, it's, we're fucked. If, a, if there's a Wendigo, then there's always going to be a Wendigo and there's mm-hmm. no getting around it. But what Robin Wall Kimmerer does in that last essay, you know, she's talking about feeding the Wendigo poison, basically getting it to like, basically giving it a taste of its own medicine. Um, because the medicine she makes it out of is one of the Wendigo ish plants mm-hmm. that like takes things over. Buckthorn. Buckthorn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So she makes a tea out of a Wendigo-ish plant, basically. Um, but in terms of what that means in real life, does it mean blow up a pipeline? Does it mean, you know, take over a building, burn down a police station, whatever? What does it mean? I don't know. But the fact that she has hope and the fact that she... I, I don't think it's... Ju- I think the fact that she is able to conjure the image gives me hope that it's not just an image. Gives me hope that it that there are... Yeah, of course we don't know the answer to stop climate change right now, or else we would just do it. But we need to be telling ourselves stories that it's possible, and that it's possible through trickery, mm-hmm. maybe, rather than we got we have to have all the guns and then we can win. Um, yeah, I, I just think, I mean, we could talk forever about like, what is the way to defeat greedy, manipulative, exploitative systems and never come up with anything. Mm-hmm. But I, I do believe it's possible. And I believe that believing it's possible is, is necessary. Like, we just don't have any other choice but to, I mean, our other choice is to just jump off a cliff and and die, you know? (laughs) Which Boyd does. Yeah. Except he doesn't die. But yeah, Yeah. that's interesting. (laughs) But um, I think there's a lot of really interesting things in that Defeating Wendigo chapter too, because he basically, she, sorry, she talks about how she even arrived to the possibility of getting the creative idea of making the buckthorn tea. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. she listens to storytelling, to a myth, and then she has a dream. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. With with the trickster in it that, like, reminds her of her, of her value or, like, her gifts, that her gifts is making, is to make medicine. Mm Mm-hmm. And then thinking about the stories that the different plants have to tell, including the fucked up imperialist plant, Buckthorn, <laughs> that thrives in um, in disturbed areas and poisons the soil so that only it can thrive there. Right. So that all of these things have their uses is really interesting to me, too. So there's just like... I'm I'm really grateful for this book for braiding sweetgrass because I think it's helping me think about different things in different ways and also acknowledging that there's sources of inspiration for how to like creatively address different things can come from different places. So that's like different a- places than books and traditional institutions. Yes. And that one of those key places are the myths and stories that we tell each other mm-hmm. that are still useful to us. Yeah. And that's like a point that she makes where it's like, we're not clinging to these stories and myths because they're old. The reason why they're still around is because they're still relevant. Yeah. Right. Um, and so as long as they remain relevant, then that's why they're going to be, you know, that's how they're going to be passed down. And so what are the different stories that we can think to tell to ourselves, to tell to each other about what it means to like 
be in the world <laughs> in ways that we choose to be instead of compulsively <laughs> like interacting with the world in ways that are just pure consumption without any responsibility or even any thought. Like that's what ravenous is truly about is that's what the Wendigo is. Um, like there's no sense to be made. It's just consumption. It's, it's not, not, you know, it's not indiscriminate actually, or it's not, not discriminate. Oh gosh. I don't know if that's right. (laughs) Wait, you're saying it is indiscriminate. Yeah. I think at the end of the day it is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, God, why do I keep for Colonel Hart? Not not Nile. Nile. Who's, who's, Name. Colonel uh, Ives, Colonel Ives, Hart. No, Ives. Okay, the long eye. That Colonel Ives thinks he can control the Wendigo, mm-hmm. but if but he can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's like, oh, I have this beautiful, efficient system. It's like, no, people are gonna show up to this thing, and you, you, if you had lived, you would have tried to just like decimate whoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so hopefully, Ravenous can become one of those cultural myths that uh, we tell ourselves along. The same lines as uh, Falling Sky Woman and uh, the other Anishinaabe myths. Ravenous can become a modern braiding sweetgrass style myth. Oh, I don't. You're fucking up again, Dave. I'm joking. With the modern thing. Is, is, is that fucking up? Is yes. the joke fucking up? <laughs> That's a joke. Okay, well, I didn't get the joke. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, listener, you're not alone. Bettina also did not get the joke in case you. <laughs> No, I was just, I thought it was funny that you were saying this very beautiful thing about the stories we tell ourselves and we're talking about this like clowny movie. Oh yeah. I'm about- totally, I I am down. I am not a purist or a snob when it comes no, to no. media. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> well, have we exhausted your thoughts or do you have? Not really, but it's okay. We can stop. <laughs> okay. Um, For more, check out Bettina's ravenous and braiding sweetgrass themed podcast why are you looking at me with such twisted <laughs> up? and literally anytime i try to just make a little tiny joke you look at me like i let out a shit or <laughs> a shart just relax I, <laughs> okay. like, please let me i'm just <laughs> grimacing from like where is he going with this <laughs> yeah cool well that feels good um <laughs> no thank you for for doing this and i did Love this movie, truly. And it feels like a good easing back into the uh, the more contemplative interviews <laughs> I tend to do on this show. Okay. So, thank Yay. you. <laughs> that is the show. Thank you to Bettina for being on this episode, for talking about this movie. Go see the movie. If you haven't, go see it. Rent it. It's it's worth it. It's worth the three or four bucks. Also, join the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dave Marr. That is the best way to support me. I'm an independent artist. I'm not part of some big machine. You can also just spread word of mouth about the show. Tell people... Who might like it? It's a very specific thing. So if it's for you, I think it's really, really for you. So help me find those people. And until next week, remember, you are a mist. Only human. And human beings, they do miracles.